Welcome to Impact, podcast ministry of St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Middleton, Wisconsin. Impact features interviews with gifted Bible teachers who will help you gain a greater understanding of Scripture so that it has a greater impact on your life. The host of Impact is Mark Jenstead, the staff minister for Nurture at St. Andrew. Hi everyone, from Psalm 19, the word of God is more precious than gold, than much pure gold. It is sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. And that word is before us today, ready to bless us in both ways that are known and unknown. I am glad you found this podcast ministry and I hope you keep coming back. And here's a prayer request that you would say a prayer that God continues to bless this ministry and all who listen to it and the guests that share with us their gift of being able to understand and then explain the scriptures to us. Our topic today is forgiveness. Are you struggling to forgive someone who has badly hurt you or a loved one? Is your struggle to forgive someone who repeatedly hurts you? Is it hard to forgive those who treat you poorly? Jesus understands, and he has words for you. And those words are our focus today. We'll turn to them after this prayer. Dear Jesus, forgiving can be very hard, but we know that is your expectation of us. Help us through your word to be people who are quick to forgive. Amen. So folks, again, thanks for being here today. It's great to have you with us today. And our guest, it's great to have him as well. It's Professor Steve Geiger from Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. I look forward to our visiting today about the parable of the unmerciful servant found in Matthew chapter 18. So folks, if you are able to open up your Bibles, Matthew chapter 18 is where we will be today and talk about this huge topic of forgiveness, both the forgiveness that we receive and then the forgiveness that we offer to those who sin against us. But before we go there, can I ask you about your book? Last time we were here, we, we talked a little bit about the book you are writing. How's it going? Yeah, thank you very much. It's actually been a big part of my summer. So probably a week and a half ago, I walked into the office of one of my brothers here on campus and said, I just have to tell somebody that I didn't finish the book, but I finished the second major section, which is probably was probably one of the most challenging ones uh, to make it through. So now I'm in the last section, and I've actually got the end of the book written. Um so I know the conclusion and all of the rest, and I know the outline of what's going to be in between. So thank, thank the Lord. Like it really, I mean, it is one of those things where you realize it's very hard to force things from your head onto paper, but you thank the Lord when he blesses in that way. So Lord willing, I will have it complete uh, this, this summer, or if not this summer, soon after. Okay, Professor, can you give us a summary of the content of your book? Yeah, so we're not... Um, 100% sure on what the title is going to be, but um, a possible title is The Bible's Story, and uh, from parchment to the present. Basically, trying to help somebody who is wondering, um, how did we get the book that we call the Bible? And to take it all the way, just from the beginning concept of 
what um, what a mind blowing thing it is that God talks to us, right? Like you know, who of us has a right to have God speak to us? Just the fact that God chose to do that, and then the fact that He chose to put it in writing. And then that he chose to have the Holy Spirit miraculously get his words to people so that it could be in writing. And then that process of once the books were miraculously put down on papyrus or parchment, there was 2,000 or more years of history where those were just copied by regular human beings like you and me. Um, Once that happened, um, now in our own day, it had to be translated. And so... What's involved in taking something from the original Greek or Hebrew and getting it into English? And really the biggest, kind of the big picture question, like why why care about this, is that every one of us wants to be sure that like what we're talking about today is actually God's word. Like if this is, if there was some like big issue, either in the creation of the text or in the passing along of the text, where something human got inserted and this isn't really divine text, then we really shouldn't be here today. By God's grace, we can be confident that we should be here today, but this book intends to tell the story to help others who haven't thought about this realize, absolutely, I can be confident that I have God's direct message to me. Very good. I love it. I love the topic, and I look forward to reading it someday. Awesome. Okay, well, before us today, Professor, the parable of the unmerciful servant, I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. I love all of Jesus' parables, but this one this one is near the top for me in terms of the ones I just enjoy studying and teaching. So I uh, really am looking forward to getting your insight on this parable today found in Matthew chapter 18. Can we begin by having you place this parable in the context of Jesus' discussion with his disciples? Thank you. That's an excellent question to start with. There's, I suppose, first of all, a broader context, and then we can talk like a real more narrow context. The broader context is that we are getting close to the end of Jesus' ministry. So before this, we have Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, which was a big moment. And he comes down the mountain, and he's ready to take on, ultimately, the sin of the world by suffering on the cross. So you can imagine him walking toward Jerusalem in a sense. Um, physically, though, after, after this, he goes on the other side of the Jordan. So the east side of the Jordan River kind of separated from what had been the focus of his ministry in Galilee and then to some degree in Jerusalem. And he does a lot of teaching. It's called the Perean ministry. And once that ministry is done, then he's got a few other little ventures, but but kind of the bottom line is he's right on the verge of then heading up to Jerusalem from Jericho to die. So we're well into his ministry. You can understand then that the questions that are coming are questions that have disciples who've heard a lot of what Jesus has taught them to this point. Um, It's not that they're fully understanding everything that Jesus has ever said, but they've got a lot of background that they can build on. And that helps us maybe put Peter's question into a context of, you know, this is something that Christians really struggle with. Christians struggle with it. Like we might get how an unbeliever could struggle with this, but it might puzzle us that a Christian could struggle with it. And to understand that is to then really appreciate what Jesus is doing in the answer he gives. So that's the broader context. Um, 
it's, it's actually quite important here to see what the immediate context is. And that is right before this. So we're in Matthew 18. If you end up looking at verse 15, he, Jesus says, um, he had explained how he loves the lost. He loves to go after people who are struggling. And then Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and talk to him about it. And if he listens, you know, awesome. But what if he doesn't listen? And then you bring someone else along. And what if he still doesn't listen? Then you go to the larger group of believers and say, we really have to help this, this brother in Christ. So let's tell him. And let's say he doesn't listen even then. Then you, you separate him from the body of believers. You let him know that the devil's got him. And why do you do that? You, you do that because you want him in the best possible way to be scared. You want him to realize that he's separated himself from God. So this whole thing about showing love to a Christian brother or sister who has fallen into a sin, it repeatedly brings up the, but if he repents, forgive him. So the context here is someone who has been brought to an understanding of their sin and recognizes they were wrong. When that happens, God says, assure him that his sin has been sent away. And that's when Peter asks, how many times do we have to do that? If one thinks about even some of the questions that you raised at the beginning of this podcast about people who are struggling with forgiveness, there's one distinction that might be just a starting point for our conversation that can help us help those who are struggling with this realize there are certain situations where you might be thinking, okay, like, what are you telling me, pastor? What are you telling me, professor, that I'm supposed to forgive this person who is continuing to sin? Like he's not repenting of his sin. The one thing that God does want us to do all the time when we are sinned against is not hold a grudge. So he doesn't want us to be angry at someone who is sinning in a way that just makes us mad and we hate them and all of the rest. We can be angry at the sin and we can, in a proper way, even be angry at the sinner for what they're doing to others and how they're harming their own soul. But what we really struggle with in a case like that is we hold a grudge. We're getting frustrated. We feel God is letting us down or something. The other kind of forgiveness that we can, so sometimes we call that forgiveness, like that we're forgiving them. But It may be better actually not to use the word forgiveness in that context because what we aren't doing in that context is telling that person before God, you can be at peace. Um, That kind of forgiveness is what sometimes is called the application of the keys, like the locking and unlocking key where you're either telling someone who's not repentant, your sin is still stuck to you and you're in trouble, Or if someone has been brought to repentance, your sin is set free from you. If one of our listeners is struggling with someone who really is not acknowledging their sin, on the one hand, we should not forgive them. Like we should not tell them they're okay with God. On the holding a grudge side, we should, by God's power, let go, like not personally be tormented by it. But Big picture, if that ever happens, our passion is still to do what comes right before these words. Bring their sin to their attention. They don't listen to it. Bring someone along. If they don't listen to it, right, you just try to amp it up to show them the seriousness. 
And what we're really focusing on today then is not the non-grudge attitude a Christian has when they know someone they love is caught in a sin. That's also true. But the focus here is, what if that person who has really hurt a lot of people is brought to his knees? Peter knows that can be incredibly hard when you know the pain that person has caused. What if they've been brought to their knees and they are in need of the grace of God and you are there to give it to them and you're angry and you don't want to? Peter says, how many times do I have to do that? And that's where we move forward from. Okay, uh, before we do move forward with more questions on the sheet, uh, how about this question, based on what you told me? From a practical standpoint, someone sins against me, is it biblically appropriate for me to say, I forgive you, but God does not or God will not forgive you until, unless you repent of that sin and turn to Jesus. Hmm. Because there is a distinction, right? I can forgive someone because Jesus tells me to, but I can't tell someone God forgives you unless that attitude is there of penitence. Isn't it true that I'm asking you a bunch of questions here. Yeah, I like, I'm no, just that's, I'm, that's I'm trying good. to I'm trying that's to uh, make sure you and our listeners understand what I'm trying to say. I am told to forgive someone. God tells me, Mark, you must forgive, but he doesn't say only if that person repents. But of course, when it comes to God forgiving someone, that forgiveness is only to those who repent. You're putting your finger on a really important question, and it kind of is, um, you know, how are we using words and what do we mean by them? So, like we have the Bible verse, love covers over a multitude of sins. We know that if someone, let's say we don't even know if they're a believer or an unbeliever. Let's say we're driving in our car, right, and someone is, is really rude and they cut us off. And the question is, what kind of feeling should I have inside at that moment? Is it anger, um, bitterness? You know, do I get upset at them and try to now drive ahead of them and and try to show them that I'm really angry? Or in a moment like that, when someone has done something wrong, does God want my attitude to be one of I will I will let that go, I will not be I will not hold a grudge against that person, I will not seek vengeance, things like that. So often we use the word forgive, and what we mean is. Uh, cover over that sin, don't hold a grudge, don't seek revenge, don't have a negative attitude toward that person who has sinned. So if that's what we mean by forgive, then we would say God does want us to have that forgiving attitude toward all things that are done against us, right? And, and, And Jesus, in a way, like when he was on the cross, exemplified that where he prays to his father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Right? He was showing that he wasn't holding a grudge. He saw they were the ones who were hurting. He longed for them to be helped. What we're talking about um, when we speak of God forgiving them, right, which in the way that you're framing it, is 
is that person in a right relationship with God? Have they been covered in the robe of Jesus' righteousness? Has their sin been sent away so that if they were to die in that moment, they would not be punished for their sin? And that's where we'll often talk about the key, the ministry of the keys, the locking and unlocking key, where now we're announcing to someone, before God, your sin is forgiven. So I think we could understand what you said properly, that God always wants us to have a forgiving attitude towards someone who has wronged us. If The question, though, is now I'm talking to that person who cut me off, right? And he's shouting at me. At that moment, do I say, I forgive you? There what we would be wrestling with is, okay, um, you know, we could say, in my heart, I'm not holding a grudge. We could say to that person, please know I am not angry at you. If the word forgive is conveys that, you know, I wouldn't have a problem saying that. But I, I forgive you, although it might make him more angry <laughs> in that moment. But the the question when someone has sinned against you is how do I communicate that first thing? Attitude of love, no vengeance, all of the rest. And when is it crossing over into like, I want you to know that there's still a spiritual issue in play. I'm irrelevant here. <laughs> God's the one who matters. And if that's the case, then what you're going to be doing is you're going to just be using patient and gentle love to try to bring them to the place where they're seeing what they've done is wrong. So then you can speak in the name of Christ, I forgive you. There is a distinction there. And I think it's important, especially when, I think it's especially important when someone has suffered Sometimes from a family member, you know, sometimes let's, let's say there's somebody who has been an alcoholic in your family, you know, and, and you're hearing your pastor tell you, well, you're supposed to forgive him. And you're saying, I am praying not to hold a grudge, but I know what he's done and he keeps doing it. And he doesn't seem to be sorry for what he's doing. Like, are you telling me I have to forgive him? And actually there would be scenarios where God would say, no. In fact, don't, because he's not recognizing how serious this is. He needs to hear God's warning in that moment, not God's comfort. That, that can be very freeing for someone who knows they've got a family member who's living in sin. They care more about that person's soul than they do about themselves, right? Um, even as the whole time through, they're praying personally, Dear Lord, help me not hold a grudge. Help me see, maybe it's my husband as the one who's pounding a nail in Jesus' hand. Like my prayer for him is that the Father would forgive him. But until he realizes that, as kind of Peter talked about in that sermon on Pentecost, you killed Christ. Like He didn't say to Jerusalem, don't worry, I forgive you. He said, you killed Christ, and they were cut to the heart, right? And then at that moment, Peter describes there's a path out. Uh, a Christian wife who obviously is going to be using other people to bring the sin to the attention of her husband or whatever can hear God say forgive and know that he's not telling her to overlook that sin and just grin and bear it and suffer. He's telling her what he wants her to do after her husband has been confronted with his sin 
and by God's grace has been brought to repentance. I love that phrase you use, there's a path out. I mean, that's Jesus, right? Jesus is the path out. Let's go to the text. Matthew 18, before the parable, Peter asks this question, which you referred to, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother when he sins against me? How many times implies Peter's thinking there's a limit here. Why why does Peter think it's appropriate to have a limit on this forgiveness? I think it's really hard. Like all of us would like to say that we easily forgive people who have shown themselves to be repentant of a sin or that it's easy for us to forgive people who, assuming the best, we know they would tell us they were wrong, right? Because sometimes we do things and we don't confront every sin with a direct, but we can remember them. We can remember sins. We'd like to think that it's easy for us to be a forgiving person, but it is, it is so hard for us to stop thinking about what people have done wrong to us. Even if they have confessed their sin to us, and even if we have told them that we forgive them, it is so easy to not forget those things. Well, that's very true, isn't it? That it's easier for us to forget our own sins that we have committed than the sins that people have committed against us. Those we happen to remember. And you wonder with Peter, like to some degree, he's being transparent. Because we know this story, there's a part of us that would say, I would never ask Jesus that. <laughs> like how many times? Like, of course. But in fact, are we, are we in greater danger because we aren't asking that question? Because we're living comfortable not forgiving people that we ought to forgive. Peter's transparency allows us to embrace the very same words and say, you know, that is, this is very hard for me to truly speak words of love to someone who has been brought to their knees when I know that God wants me to love the person who has sinned. And Peter seems to think seven times is reasonable. He says up to seven times, and Jesus says not seven times, but I tell you as many as 77 times. I have two questions here, Pastor. First, do you think Peter was surprised at Jesus' answer? And was it obvious to Peter that Jesus was not being literal? Like, I've been curious about, like, why didn't he say eight or six, right? Like, there was there something about the number seven? And we know, we know in the book of Revelation that the number seven can convey a sense of completeness. And so there's probably something I could know that I don't know, or maybe we just don't know. In, in the Jewish world, was the number seven of some significance. Like it's a, it's, it's a significantly complete number, but it's not, you know, 14 or 77. Jesus in his answer clearly says that's not a big enough number. So as to whether Peter knew that Jesus wasn't being literal at that point, it's possible that Peter himself was being, was using a little imagery just in the fact that he chose seven, not six. You know, it was a, there was a completeness to it, but it wasn't a really big number. And then Jesus basically says, it's way bigger than what you're thinking is a complete number, whether it's 77 or 70 times seven. We just don't know for sure how those Greek words ought to be read. Um, Peter doesn't give us a reply. So 
I don't know that we could say for sure, but I think we could pretty safely assume that Peter's mind is now officially blown. This is impossible, what you've just asked. I think we can assume that he understood this was way more than he ever could imagine. And of course, and of course, Jesus knew that his mind was blown. Therefore, Jesus gives him this parable to help him understand. And the parable begins with Jesus saying, therefore, and before we get into the parable, Jesus says this at the beginning that he frequently says, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like, what does that phrase in this context mean? The kingdom of heaven is like. He does talk about the kingdom of heaven. He'll talk about the kingdom of God. Whenever we hear the word kingdom, we're thinking about ruling activity, right? You have a kingdom when you have a king. You've got a kingdom when you've got people who are being ruled. So in this case, it's the ruling activity that is connected to heaven. It is the ruling activity that is connected to God. And consistently when Jesus talks about this, what he is speaking of is not a nation with boundaries or even... um, the location of heaven. But what he's talking about is God's kingdom. What constitutes the thing that God is ruling? I mean, finally, he rules everything and everyone, right? But he's clearly explaining here. We're talking about the group of believers. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is those people who are children of God, who are members of his family. And then the kingdom, it's kind of like the ruling activity within that context of God and believers and we're his kingdom and how does how does this operate? Like, what does it mean to be part of the kingdom? And so now what he's talking about is how does, how does God's truth operate within the kingdom? And forgiveness is very much a part of how God rules, how the kingdom operates. So forgiveness, forgiveness out there in the world, that's one thing, but forgiveness among God's people is like this, or this is how it should be. Well said. And there are certainly times when we talk about kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God principles where the Christian will realize there's an application of this outside of the actual Christian community. So it's not that the applications could never go outside the kingdom of God, as it were, but what he is talking about is how does the the Holy Spirit rule in my heart? When the Holy Spirit is controlling in my heart, this is what it looks like. And, And in this particular case, the focus is certainly on people who have been brought to repentance and now are to hear words of forgiveness. So in that regard, you could say, like we're thinking about people who, if they're not Christian, they'll become Christian, or that this will be the gospel that is power to bring them to faith. Do you think that Jesus told Peter this parable because Jesus knows how hard it is for Peter and for us to forgive others? It's crazy that our sinful flesh could find a way to sin in the context of love, but our sinful flesh finds a way to sin in any context. And absolutely. Jesus understands how hard it is for us joyfully to show love because the inclination of our flesh is to be selfish. It is to be proud. Pride doesn't look to show sympathy to someone who's hurting. 
pride looks to crush someone who's hurting. And it's a shame. Um, you know, none of us wants to think that that's what we're like, but, but every one of us as Christians knows we have a sinful flesh that is exactly like that. And so that's what's, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's equipping Peter to engage in mortal combat with his sinful flesh. I've talked to people, Pastor, that struggle to forgive someone. I have often told people to read this parable. Is that a good move? I think as a, a doctor of souls, which is what we all long to be, right? You know, that we're listening well, we're understanding well. Um, what is the person really struggling with? That, that um, I think the thing we started off with, trying to determine whether or not the struggle that they're facing is one of holding a grudge, you know, to be like crucified by the Roman soldiers and to just be ticked off at the Roman soldiers. Like, is that what the struggle is? Or is the struggle, this person has been brought to repentance and I'm still angry at them. To know where they're coming from as to like what we direct them to would be helpful just so that we're not accidentally misunderstood. That the impression that they're taking from us in this parable is, okay, like I'm just not supposed to be concerned that this person is sinning. They just get a free pass to do it again and again and again. If we're concerned that that's you know, a conclusion they could come to, then we would want to be sure that we clarify with this parable. That's not what God is saying here. But on the other hand, if, if they're saying, you know, I really struggle to forgive this person, like I, they've, they've confessed, et cetera, et cetera, they've confessed their sin, they know that this is wrong, I still see every day the implications of what they did. You know, it might be, like imagine a parent who has a child who was um, unfaithful in a sexual way and got pregnant and they were too young to take care of the child. And so the now parents have a lot of responsibility to care for the child. Now, their daughter was, was repent, I mean, by God's grace, came to see her sin and confessed her sin. And as a mother, the mother, the father, they had the chance to assure their dear daughter that their, this, her sin was forgiven. Praise God for that. We love that little baby. And the baby was born, and now the baby needs to be taken care of. And the mother is imagining all seeing her friends go off and do their trip. And the mother knows that her daughter has to work, and so she's going to stay home and take care of the baby. And what she's struggling with in that moment as she sees that she loves the baby, she loves, but she's thinking of the things that if her daughter hadn't committed that sin, she wouldn't have to love, give up sacrifice for this little baby. That is, a, she knows it's wrong and she's struggling with it. This would be a perfect parable for her. You can forgive and completely let go and know that the debt you've absorbed in a way by forgiving is massive. But it was the right thing because you've been forgiven a debt, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, Professor, well, we have, uh, we have gotten to the beginning of the parable. 
But we've gotten to the end of this episode, so we are going to come back next week and get into the parable itself. So we'll begin next week by reading the parable. And then I've got a lot more questions for Professor Geiger. So folks, I invite you to come back next week and listen to part two of our episode on forgiveness and the parable of the unmerciful servant with Professor Geiger. We'll see you next week. Sounds great. Very good. Thank you, folks, for listening and being here. And remember this prayer, Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. Thank you for listening to Impact, a ministry of St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Middleton, Wisconsin. If you have a question or feedback to share, send an email to impact at saint-andrew-online.org. Please tell your friends and family about Impact and keep this ministry in your prayers. Impact is new every Monday and all past episodes are available. The greater you understand scripture, the greater impact it will have on your life.